sure has. Um, do you remember the, um, that experience? Maybe, what, terror? Um, all right, there's been a couple times, or two or three times in the last three or four years where we've had one, a tornado warning during the night. You know how your phone goes off and the whole family's iPhone or whatever goes off and we're in the basement and I turn on WYFF4, I'm watching Chris Justice and I'm praying. And it, there's, there's this combination of terror, or, of fear, right, and of helplessness because you can't control it. If the tornado hits your home, what do you do? So we pray. And we've seen time and time the Lord just, it misses us. How about an earthquake? Anybody been through an earthquake? Wow. Some people from California, maybe. Um, same deal. Uh, what was that like for you? What was that experience like? Uh, even though these are what we call acts of God, there's a reason why we call them that. That is nothing compared to the infinite might and power of our God. My goal for the sermon today is that we would have more appreciation and joy for when we partake of communion. We want to see our God, particularly the attributes of being holy and mighty, high and lifted up, and we'll move into um, the requirement of to appease this holy God and what the old covenant required and then the thankfulness of the new covenant in Jesus um, to give us all he's given us uh, in Christ to increase our communion and joy with the Lord. One of the uh, ways that, um, and you can go ahead and turn to Exodus 19, verse 10, but one of the things that happened uh, during that time period in biblical history as you all are probably familiar with the story of the, uh, the Egyptians crossing the Red Sea. So you had the 12 plagues, tremendous acts and power of God um, with the 12 plagues, right? I mean, God's showing his absolute sovereignty and power over nature that you can't explain other than that's a God thing. And then you had, as they leave Egypt, now you have the parting of the Red Sea. Can you imagine walking through on dry ground and there's this huge, however many feet, walls of water as you're walking through? I mean, put yourself there. Unbelievable. Um, so God showed his might and his power as he delivered the children of Israel and his sovereignty over, over the Egyptians, which were Israel's enemies. Now, in Exodus 19, 10 through 25, I want to pick up in that passage. So, they've come out of Egypt. Now Moses is going up to Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments. So that's the context. Verse 10. This is God's Word. Go ahead and stand for the reading of this uh, section, please. The Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. 
Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. That, in that sense, that was talking about uh, sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Have you ever been so scared that you trembled, actually shook? Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you that you've not left us to wander, um, being lost. You've given us light. You've given us your word. You've given us your will. Speak to us during this time, Holy Spirit, we pray for your help now, in Jesus' name, amen. So there's this aspect of God's holiness and God's might being somewhat linked here, okay? You've got a holy, holy God, infinitely holy and infinitely mighty. Actually, if you notice, speaking of himself in third person, he knows that he is dangerous, in that sense, that he's saying, look, don't let the people do this. The Lord will break out against them. Okay, you've got to be careful. There are certain requirements in order to come into God's presence. Because God is infinitely holy and infinitely mighty, he demands respect and honor. God is other and not like us, but perfect in all of his ways. There's a... Um, book I want to recommend to you, The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer, as I read some of these other verses on the holiness of God. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. For thus says the Lord who is high and lifted up, who in inhabits eternity thought of that, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him as who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. And one called to one another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. 
Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, am holy. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Are you getting the idea that God is holy? And then Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew, and one called to one another, to each other, and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Have you ever been so in the presence of a holy God that you're just like, I can't talk right now? Um, there's been a couple of those times for, for me in worship, and you're just, you know, when Isaiah says, I am lost. Have you ever been there when you're in the presence of this holy God? Um, you see the response and God's power now. Some verses in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. All sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Do you not know? It's Isaiah again. Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, power belongs to you, God. I mean, this is a God that is so powerful and so holy, and he's not to be reckoned with in our flesh. Um, he's not to be, you just go casual in his presence. He must be regarded as holy. You've got to come into his presence on his terms, because he's God, and that's what he said. Now, number two is uh, mankind is utterly sinful and deserves eternal uh, punishment. Spurgeon said, one sin can ruin a soul forever. It is not in the power of the human mind to grasp the infinity of evil that slumbereth in the bowels of one solitary sin. There is a very infinity of guilt couched in one transgression against the majesty of heaven. Do we see our sin like that? Um, are we just kind of casual, no big deal? You know, I offended God again. You know, are, are, are we, do we have this kind of awe and reverence like one sin, infinity of evil, an infinity of guilt? Because we're in awe of this holy, majestic God. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. Unbeliever, if you're, you're an unbeliever this morning, 
I've got to tell you the truth because I love you. And that is, if you're an unbeliever, you're an enemy of God. Yeah, you're, God is, you're not okay. You're not okay. God's wrath is being stored up for you. Unless you do something about it, we'll get to the solution. Um, Romans 3, 10 through 12, as is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven and on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Do we see ourselves as kind of, well, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of a good person. I'm kind of moral, you know. Um, God says none of us are born that way. None of us are born good. We're born with sin nature. What are the consequences of that if, if nothing is done about it? Nahum 1-2 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. So like that tornado you were near or that earthquake or maybe a hurricane, you said, man, that was pretty fearful. You don't want to be in the hands of an angry God, um, which leads me to Jonathan Edwards' quote, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He says, those without Christ dangle over the flames of hell like a spider over a flame. So, you know, just one little right kind of wind, puff of wind, and falling into that flame. We may not have time for it today, but if you study um, the rich man and Lazarus, just to summarize in uh, Luke 16, 19 through 31. So you have the story of uh, Lazarus, who was a poor man, and uh, the rich man who was lost and didn't know the Lord, um, was against God, and they both die. And the rich man goes to, it says, Hades, which we could also interpret as hell, literal fire. The poor man that didn't have anything in this life goes to, the, uh, the, they call it the bosom of Abraham or by Abraham's side, and he's with the Lord. And they have this conversation back and forth. Um, the rich man is just begging that Lazarus would come over and just dip the tip of his finger in some cool water and come over and just give it to him. He's so thirsty. And he, he talks about how he's in agony. Repeated, he's in agony in the flame. So there's not this, um, don't believe... You know, a liberal interpretation saying, well, you know, death is just separation from God, but, you know, it's not a big deal, or, you know, my sin's really not that serious. I'll be okay. I'll take that chance. Now, there is a literal lake of fire where you're burning forever and ever and ever, and you can never get out, um, according to Scripture. And, and the deal is, because we we've sinned against a infinite eternal God, the consequence has to be eternal. Okay, and that's why it's forever and ever.
Nothing you can do about it once you pass away from this life. So what in the world is the solution? If I'm in this much trouble, I'm a sinner, I don't do good, I, the consequences of sin, oh my goodness, um, are devastating. Um, point three here is God demands a blood sacrifice for the payment of sin. And now if we could show the video and then I'll go from there and explain. Isaac, you must trust in God.
please. Oh my boy, my boy, my boy. <laughs> At the end, a ram was caught in a thicket that God provided for the sacrifice. So we start to see this pattern in Scripture of God demanding a blood sacrifice for the payment of sin, uh, which leads me to uh, talk about what's called the Passover. Read this portion from Exodus 12 for you. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family and one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with the nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You're to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then, then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. So you, have, you see this vivid picture of the blood of a pure spotless lamb or goat um, being a sacrifice to atone for the sins of the people. So we're going to talk about atonement just a little bit. Definition. The standard encyclopedia of philosophy uh, says the definition of atonement is in terms of making amends, clarifies both notions through the vivid, vivid imagery of a torn garment. As a whole, a garment might become torn and require mending to repair, right? Like you tear a garment, okay, I need to repair it. So, so a whole relationship might become ruptured and require amends to repair. When a garment is mended, the torn parts are brought back together into a whole. That's a key phrase for atonement. Likewise, when proper amends are offered, the parties of the relationship are brought back together into a whole. They are made at one or reconciled. Making amends is thus an act of atonement, something done with the aim of reconciling the estranged parties. And then there's a theory of atonement. This is from Wikipedia um, in Protestant Christian theology, which declares that Christ, voluntarily submitting to God the Father's plan, was punished or also the word would be penalized in the place of sinners. Think about in the place of like substitution, okay? 
thus satisfying the demands of justice and propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Big word. Propitiation is the act of appeasing or making well-disposed God. So God can justly forgive sins, making us at one with God. Again, there's this restoring, making one again, making complete, making whole again, atonement. You getting that? The substitutionary nature of Jesus' death is understood in the sense of a substitutionary fulfillment of legal demands for the offenses of sins. So by that substitute, that lamb, instead of the sinner paying for his sins, there's this idea of the substitutionary atonement, thus appeasing the wrath of this holy, mighty God. Now what was required in the Old Testament for atonement? Um, so if you could turn, and it will be on the screen, I think, uh, Leviticus chapter 16. Have you ever studied or gone through Leviticus in your devotions? It can be, I even heard Dr. Bobby Wood say, I'm struggling through Leviticus. <laughs> and we're part of an Old Testament, go through Old Testament a year. And I was struggling through Leviticus too. <laughs> because there's so, so many requirements of the law to satisfy God's demands. And you just get exhausted. Like, Lord, I, I can never measure up to this. How many, would be, uh, how many would be willing to admit you're a perfectionist? I, my hand's raised, my natural nature, I've had to work on it. Uh, how about spouses? How, how many of you say my spouse is a perfectionist? <laughs> All right. I think particularly those of us that we want to get everything right. I mean, I was shaving this morning going, yeah, it's like I want to, why do you want to impress so much? Why do you, it doesn't, I want to be perfect. I want to be accepted, right? And, and there's a sense with God that, can I ever do enough? I'm on this performance track. Um, the way some of us were raised kind of aided that, um, intensified that desire to try to be darn near perfect so we can please. We can please our parents or please our authorities or please God. But in the Old Testament, so let, let me set this up. Um, in Leviticus 10, it says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. Again, they had not met the requirements that God said. They, just, they disobeyed it their way. So then let me pick up in Leviticus Chapter 16, verse 10. So we, we've, we've seen uh, the Passover, so you'll get an idea of where we're going. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill a bull as a sin offering for himself. Um, goes on to talk about the censer, coals of fire before the altar, two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, so bring it inside the veil and put incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. 
specific requirements. You've got to be pure. You've got to do it this way. Verse 14, And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat. On the east side, in front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling it over the mercy seat in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place. There's our word. Verse 17, no one may enter into the tent of meeting until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. Um, verse 20, And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall present the live goat. Then they laid their hands on the live goat um, and sent him away into the wilderness. There was this transfer that the priest did, transfer of the people sent onto the goat. The goat then takes off into the wilderness. It's called a scapegoat. You've heard that word. Okay, because there's a symbolism that their sins have been driven away. They're, they're not on them anymore. They're on the goat, and they're, they're, they're away, okay? And then it goes on to talk about washing after that, Aaron the high priest, to wash, to bathe, to make sure his clothes are clean, his body, on and on and on the requirements because God's a holy God. Now, the part that I'm in, I'd love to get to, and you too, if you feel the weight of this, that Jesus is the atoning blood sacrifice for the payment of sin for all who trust in him or believe. Jesus is that Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So listen to this passage in Hebrews. I love Hebrews. Man, so, so good. Hebrews 10, 1 through 14. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifice that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first, meaning first covenant, and establish the second. The old covenant, new covenant. Okay, establish the new covenant. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Did you hear that? Once for all. Hallelujah. Like we don't have to find these animals in sacrifice constantly year after year after year. 
And every priest stands daily at the service, offered, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 22, the same chapter, 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with true, a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart, with heart sprinkled clean from no evil, from an evil conscience in our bodies, washed with pure water. So good. So good that Christ fulfilled the law on our behalf. And he's that lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Um, I don't have a time to read a quote from uh, one of Martin Luther's sermons. Um, Well, just a little bit. But now if God's wrath, Martin Luther, if, if God's wrath is to be taken away from me and I'm to obtain grace and forgiveness... Someone must merit this, for God cannot be a friend of sin nor gracious to it, nor can he remit the punishment and wrath unless payment and satisfaction be made. Now, no one, not even an angel of heaven, can make restitution for the infinite and irreparable injury and appease the eternal wrath of God, which he had merited by our sins, except that eternal person, the Son of God himself, And he could do it only by taking our place, assuming our sins, and answering for them as though he himself were guilty of them. So this is called the great exchange. Jesus takes my sin, and he gives me his righteousness. Is that fair? Doesn't sound fair, does it? He's perfect. He takes all my sin. I'm imperfect, utterly sinful, but he gives me his righteousness. His robes for mine. Okay? Unbelievable. So before we um, partake of the bread and wine, grape juice, um, you know, if if you don't know the Lord, you know, even maybe today as I was speaking, you say, well, I might not actually have saving faith. Is there fruit in your life? Um, Know that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. This is your invitation to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Repent. You're walking this way in your sin. You change your mind. You start heading the other direction. You're heading toward Christ. That's repentance. And the fruit follows, right? Um... So that's repentance, and then you believe. You trust this Lamb of God. I trust you. You're my payment for sin for all time. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So I invite you, if you're you're not a believer, and the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart. Give in and, and, and trust Christ and experience the joy and the sweetness of walking with God. Now for the believer, 
Ephesians 2. So encouraging. Should have marked my place. Verse 1, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom you all once lived in passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See that progression? Unbeliever, you're uh, you're a child of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, two of the greatest words in all of Scripture, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Forever and ever and ever, just lavishing this kindness and grace on us. More and more and more. By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is really good news. I mean, this is really good news. When we see the level and the depth of our sin, it just magnifies the grace and the mercy of God. Because not only is he infinitely holy and infinitely mighty, he is infinitely gracious. And he is infinitely merciful. And infinitely so many other things. Um, So as we uh, prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper... Um, I'm going to read as far as to get us ready for that, Luke 22. Because you have, in Luke 22, you have the, uh, the ordinance of the Lord's Supper actually begin. So we've seen what the Passover was. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. Now you have the Lord Jesus in verse 14 of Luke 22. Saying, and when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So he's saying, eat the Passover, but he's about to make the transition. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread... And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. So this is the institution. This is where it all started. We call it communion. Why do we call it communion? What what does communion mean? It's this idea of intimate fellowship or rapport. The finished work of Christ is enough. You don't need to add anything to it. It won't do you any good. 
Christ is too holy, so don't keep trying. The finished work of Christ is enough to appease God so much that in Christ he calls, we can call him our Father. Okay, there's this intimate uh, fellowship and rapport that takes place. And so as we take the elements today, um, be ever joyous and ever grateful for what Christ has done for you. If the one warning in 1 Corinthians 11 would be if you're holding on to sin, you're not going to let it go, you're not walking with God, you're determined, don't come to the table. If you're an unbeliever, don't come to the table. Um, doesn't mean you're perfect. None of us are perfect, but if there's this pattern of oh, sin again, confess that sin, repent of it, and you just want to walk with the Lord and fellowship, then you coming will be consistent with your walk. Um, again, not perfect, but um, so you can enjoy the meal. I can't wait for that meal at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Can you imagine? We read last week. A number, a, a, uh, around the throne, without number, there's so many people. Can you imagine that meal taking place when finally we're presented as uh, Christ's bride to him, pure and spotless because we're covered in the righteousness of Christ. Now we all get to sit down and have this big, huge meal together and enjoy. Let, think about that when you're partaking and just commune with the Lord and just appreciate what he's done on, on your behalf through Christ. If you don't know the Lord and you say, you know, I, I really think I want to put my faith in Christ today for my salvation, come to the altar. Um, I would encourage you. Um, if you're afraid to come on your own, turn to the person next to you and come together. Let today be the day of salvation for you. Um, so as, as we come and partake of the elements, I would ask Bobby and Baron. Come, please. Elders. It's, oh, Baron's in the sound, that's right. Baron can't come. John, would you mind? Thank you. John's also an elder of just not particularly active in this church right now, but all, once an elder, always an elder, right? Um, so as we partake, uh, I will pray, and then, again, feel free to come and just enjoy this communion with our Lord. Once everybody has the elements, then we'll take it together. Father,